Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Mark. The Listener's Commentary is a crowd-funded Bible teaching effort made possible by the generosity of all sorts of people just like you. So if you're one of the supporters, thanks a ton for that. If you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so at the link down in the notes below or just swing over to listenerscommentary.com, click the Give button, and you can set up a one-time or a monthly donation right there. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 42. The previous section, just before this section, highlighted three important things that really set the tone and shape for the story of Mark at this point. One of those things is that it's almost Passover. Uh, the, the other is that Judas had arranged with the chief priests in Jerusalem leadership to hand Jesus over to them. And then the third thing that the previous story highlighted was that uh, this woman had anointed Jesus, and Jesus describes that as like preparation for his burial. And so there's this sense of foreboding now in the story as we turn towards Passover, which is supposed to be a time of celebration. But we, the reader, know that Judas is betraying Jesus and that he is preparing for his death. And so we now turn in the story to one long extended narrative leading from Passover to his arrest to his quote-unquote trial and then ultimately his execution. That's where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. So here we pick up in Mark 14, 12 with this little note. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? The reason they asked the question is because they've been staying out in Bethany, but the Passover feast needed to be eaten inside of the city of Jerusalem. And so as they come to Passover itself, here called unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, and the reason they refer to it as unleavened bread is because the festival or feast of unleavened bread and Passover pretty much just went uh, simultaneously together. You had Passover where you sacrifice the Passover lamb, and then coming right out of that, you have a week-long festival or feast of unleavened bread. And in fact, there's actually evidence that in the first century for example, from Josephus, the day of preparation when the Passover lamb was sacrificed was actually treated as like the first day of the festival. And so we're really here at the um, the opening day of the festival of unleavened bread and Passover. And so the preparations now need to be made for a most special Passover. And here's what Jesus says when they asked him, where do you want us to prepare for it? Well, Jesus chose two disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. The reason that would stand out is usually that wasn't what a man did. Typically, that was something you would see a woman doing. So this is clearly uh, something that's going to stand out and be easy to uh, discover or find. And so when you see a man carrying a pitcher of water, Follow him, and wherever he enters, that is what house he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may prepare to eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upstairs room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. And so it seems as if Jesus had made some sort of arrangements with someone inside the city of Jerusalem, 
and that this tip-off, as I noted, would be a man carrying a water jar. And so once they uh, identified that man, they would follow him to the house and uh, they could prepare there. It's quite possible that Jesus had made these arrangements and wanted to kind of keep things a little bit covert on the down low because there was this death plot on his life. He knew the Jewish leadership was looking to kill him. And so let's kind of keep things on the down low. So in some sense, it appears he's made these arrangements in that sort of way. Well, the two disciples that Jesus had chosen left. They went into the city of Jerusalem. They found everything just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover, which means they set up the table. So you need to picture kind of low-lying tables with benches or couches of some sort around it on which people could lie down on while they ate. That was the typical way to eat, particularly when you're talking about a formal banquet. selecting a lamb and sacrificing it, roasting then the lamb and preparing for the entire Passover meal. And in what follows, Mark then describes two events that happen at the meal. The Passover supper was typically a meal that lasted several hours, but Mark focuses on just a couple snapshots. The warning of a betrayer, and then the part where Jesus explains the meaning of his death, which is going to happen within the next 15 hours or so. So first, the snapshot about the betrayer. Notice verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, and so we have just fast forward through getting to the upper room, to the opening bit of the meal. We are now there. We're in that upstairs room that has been prepared. Jesus is with his 12. They're lying around the table. And in the context of that meal, while they're eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. I wonder how this hit Judas since he was at least there for uh, the first part of the meal we know from the other gospels. Um, Also notice the line about one who is eating with me. That's significant. Eating together in the Middle Eastern uh, culture was such a deep, deep social event uh, that it spoke about harmony and unity and loyalty. And so to betray someone that you had eaten with, that was about as deep of a betrayal as you could possibly get. It's the worst kind of betrayal. And that's the point, uh, that somebody who has eaten with Jesus, not just at this meal, but uh, throughout the course of their relationship, he's one that's going to betray them. And the disciples all respond to that with shock, grief. They can't believe it. So verse 19, they began to be grieved and say to to him, one by one, surely it's not me. Um, This is just, I mean, like they're his closest companions. Surely it's not I. But he said to them, verse 20, it is one of the 12, one who dips bread with me in the bowl. Now, the point of that is not to identify the betrayer per se, but it restates the point of eating together. As part of the meal, they would all at various times dip in the bowl with Jesus as part of the Passover experience. And the point is that they're his closest and most trusted friends. They've eaten with him. And so this simply restates the fact that the betrayer is one of them, and it is one of them who has eaten with him, and thus it's a deep, deep stab in the back. 
Then Jesus goes on to explain further about this. Verse 21, he says, For the Son of Man himself is going away just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And so uh, this is going to happen, Jesus says. It's going to happen just as it is written about him. Uh, But woe to him through whom it happened. Even though it's in keeping with the the purposes of God and what God has said would happen, the one through whom it's going to happen is still responsible for his actions. And uh, woe to him. He says it would have been better for that man if he had not even been born. Like this is that the shame, the dishonor, the disgrace, the accountability, the condemnation on this person for doing this, um, even though it's in keeping with Scripture, woe to him uh, for betraying the Son of Man. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what Scripture he has in mind, right? Like, he's the Son of Man's going just the way it has been written about him. But we don't know what what passage. could be a passage like Psalm 41.9, the one about um, the one who shared my bread betrayed me. Or maybe Isaiah 53, which Jesus will allude to in verse 24. Uh, maybe, more likely perhaps, just a composite picture from a number of texts about what's going to happen to the ultimate son of David, to the Messiah. Um, and that really seems to be the idea. The emphasis is really on the fact that this is part of the scriptures and it is part of God's plan. And yet, the one who is going to betray him Uh, is still responsible for his actions, and it would have been better if he had not been born. So that's the first snapshot of what happens at the meal. Now, the second snapshot is uh, connecting this Passover meal with his death. It's what we call the Lord's Supper, and Mark's account of it is quite brief. Look at verse 22. While they were eating, He, Jesus, took some bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. Here, Jesus alters the traditional blessing of the bread by saying that it symbolizes him and what's going to happen to him, specifically to his body. Just as he broke the bread, so his body will be broken. Not literally. We know none of his bones were broken, but it'll be broken in the sense that he is going to die. At the Passover, the Jewish interpretation of the bread stated, This is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate when they came out of Egypt. And they understood that the bread they were eating wasn't literally the same bread as the bread of affliction, right? But it represented it. And it enabled them to really relive that same sort of experience. Well, now Jesus takes that bread and offers a new understanding of the bread centered on him. Just as Passover was reliving God's deliverance of Israel every year for the Jewish people, so now this meal is a representation, if you will, a representation, a reliving of God's saving work through Jesus' sacrificial death. And so he blesses the bread, tells them to eat it because it really embodies what he's about to undergo. Then, verse 23, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many. Now, at the Passover meal, there were multiple cups that were just part of the feast, and we don't know how, like, 
set in stone the Passover liturgy was in Jesus' day. We know from later in the Mishnah that it revolved around four specific cups, and that has roots in Jesus' day, and so maybe it was sort of closely embodying what we read about in the Mishnah. And if so, this is likely the third Passover cup, which came at the end of the meal, And once again, Jesus takes that cup and gives it a new symbolic meaning revolving around his death. Just as the cup was poured out, so his blood would be poured out. And notice he describes it as the blood of the covenant, which really alludes to or echoes Exodus 24, 8, where the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was ratified with blood. Well, Jesus' death and Jesus' blood will ratify the new covenant. So this is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant specifically, the one promised, for example, in Jeremiah 31. The old covenant was ratified by pouring out of the blood of uh, lambs. Well, so too the new covenant will be ratified with the pouring out of the blood of the lamb, Jesus himself. And so this is the blood of the new covenant, which is being poured out, notice, for many. And that's the allusion to Isaiah 53, where there in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant dies for the sake of the many. And so he says, truly I say to you, verse 25, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. The fruit of the vine, that phrase is traditional Passover language for the blessing of the wine at the Passover meal. And so it suggests that what Jesus means by this is that this is the last Passover I'm going to eat with you. Well, After mentioning that, verse 26, they sing a a hymn, a song, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, before we move on in the story and leave this, just some initial reflections. Here, at the culmination of his ministry and mission, Jesus gave a symbol-laden meal, a tangible, experiential way to re-experience him and to re-experience his self-giving sacrifice for us, for his people. And Jesus achieved a new exodus, a greater exodus by means of his death. Just as the Passover celebrated the original exodus, well, this new exodus celebrates deliverance from the bondage of sin and death and the powers of evil. And so here, in this simple little uh, tangible reminder of bread and juice, bread and wine, here is an opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. And the early church took this very seriously. They celebrated it as often as they gathered together. It was a key and central part of their worship experience. And so we who continue to follow Jesus, we need to take it with that same seriousness and to remember what it's all about and that we're invited into re-experiencing this new exodus that Jesus achieved for us. All right, now, Back to the story here in Mark. They have sung a hymn. They've left the upper room. They're heading out to the Mount of Olives. And as they go, Jesus gives them a warning. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That 
quote is from Zechariah 13.7, Zechariah 13.7, and its original context, it referred to God striking down his appointed leader and then the people being scattered as a result. Well, Jesus applies that to himself. He is the Messiah. He is the appointed leader of God and says that's what's going to happen to him. He's going to be struck down and his disciples are going to be scattered just like that. He's been preparing them for this moment, right? We've seen that throughout the Gospel of Mark, telling them that it's coming, telling that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die. Well, now the time has come. It's here. But scattering won't be the final word. Look at verse 28. But after I am raised, he knows he's going to die, but he also knows he's going to be resurrected. And so after I am raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Well, full of bravado, Peter insists, not him, no way. I won't be scattered. I won't fall away. Look at verse 29. But Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter repeatedly said insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then the others joined in and they were all saying the same thing as well. And so here we get Peter, full of his bravado, full of self-confidence. No, I am loyal to you, Jesus. I will stick by you. Jesus says, not going to happen. You're actually going to deny me three times before the rooster actually crows uh, at late at night, early in the morning. Well, they arrive where they're heading namely the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 32, they came to the place named Gethsemane, which was a garden spot on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The word Gethsemane actually refers to like an olive oil press, like where you would press olives to extract the oil. And we we don't actually know the exact location. There have been several options that have been suggested. And obviously, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see the traditional location of the Uh, uh, Garden of Gethsemane, Uh, but we just don't know exactly where it was at. Uh, Jesus, though, gathered there often with his disciples, and so in the Gospel of John, he notes that Judas knew to find Jesus and his disciples there because they went there so often. And so instead of, Jesus knows what's coming, but he's not hiding. He keeps his routine, and he goes to Gethsemane. Um, And he said to his disciples, once they got there, verse 32, sit here, until I have prayed. And so he says to the group of uh, disciples, you guys stay here. I'm going to go off and pray. He takes Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And so we have nine of the 12 uh, being told to sit here. Jesus is going to go pray. Then we have his inner circle, Peter, James, and John being chosen to come with him a little further and deeper into the garden. And Jesus, notice Jesus' words to them, very distressed, troubled, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, right? Like notice the emphasis on Jesus' emotional state. And it's important that we don't overlook this. Jesus is fully human. And as a human being, he knows what's coming. And he is deeply grieved about this. He's distressed. That word, more when not applied to Jesus, it usually means 
anxious, right? He's troubled. Um, he says, I'm so troubled and grieved. I feel like I'm going to die, right? Like it's, it's crushing. It's weighing in on him. And he experiences the full range of human emotions. And here he experiences this, the weight of what's coming. Well, he shares that with his three closest friends. He asks them to keep watch. Um, and then he's going to go off a little further away and pray. And keeping watch for them probably includes the idea from what we see in what follows of praying as well. And so verse 35, he went a little bit beyond them and he fell to the ground. Notice he goes down on the ground, maybe just his knees, maybe laying completely out in front of the Lord in his grief and his trouble. So he falls to the ground and he began praying that if possible, the hour might pass him by. What's the hour? Well, the hour of suffering, the hour that is now upon him, his arrest, his trial, his beating, and his execution that is all about to happen. And so that's the focus of his prayer, that the hour uh, might pass him by. That's what he wants at one level. And he was saying, Mark records his words for us in verse 36, Abba, Father, Abba is the Aramaic, the, the typical way a Jew in Jesus' day would address his dad. So Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Like you can do anything, remove this cup from me. A very clear and specific request to not go through what he's, uh, he's about to endure and what is weighing so heavily upon him. Remove this cup from me, yet... Not what I want, not what I will, but what you want, what you will. Um, notice that, that at one level, with the weight of what's weighing down on him and the, the range of human emotions that he's experiencing, I don't want this. And yet there's a deeper want that Jesus has, deeper than just uh, his own initial response to this. It's what God wants. And so he says, not what I want, but what you want. Well, after praying for a little while, Jesus gets up in verse 37 and he came back to the three and he found them sleeping. And he said to, notice specifically Peter, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for just one hour? So instead of keeping watch and praying, Peter is sleeping. Just an hour or so ago, he was full of bravado. He would never fall away. He was too loyal. No, I'm not going to fall away from you. But now, here, in this moment, with Jesus experiencing what he is, here's Peter sleeping. Then Jesus restates the need to keep watch and pray to all three, Peter, James, and John. And he gives a reason for it. Look at verse 38. Keep watching and praying, right? We, we now see that this keeping watch includes praying. So keep watching and praying. And here's the reason. So that you will not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, this is in the plural. So it's addressed to all three, Peter, James, and John. And the reason given is so that you will not come into temptation. That is into testing, right? Like in the Lord's Prayer, like lead us not into temptation. Literally, lead us not into testing. And so that you will not become a victim of it. You will not fall to it, right? Capitulate to it. Because uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak. It doesn't matter how much they want to be loyal. It doesn't matter how much they don't want to be scattered, right? It doesn't matter how much uh, bravado they have or how tough Peter thinks he is. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So they better watch and pray. And then Jesus goes away again and he went away 
prayed saying the same thing. So he begging God, God, take this cup from me. Prays that again, comes back again to the three. And once again, they're sleeping. He found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. They were so exhausted, so tired, so worn out that they're sleeping again. He woke them up, roused them again. They didn't know what to say in reply to him. They're feeling sheepish and ashamed. They, they're, they, they're sorry they can't keep their eyes open. And Jesus went away again and then prayed some more and came back to them a third time and said, are you still sleeping and resting? That's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so he tells them, all right, it's time. It's here. Uh, get up. Rouse yourself. The hour has come. And so he says in verse 42, get up, let's go, because the one who is betraying me is near. In fact, most likely Jesus can actually see them coming. They are on the hillside of the Mount of Olives that stands opposite of Jerusalem. The path uh, from Jerusalem up to uh, the Mount of Olives, that's what the path they're going to be walking on at night. And they come with torches, right? Like So it's night. He can see their lights coming from the garden. And he could have fled um, over the Mount of Olives into the Judean wilderness, places where David had hidden, you know, a thousand years prior to Jesus, right? He could have fled, uh, but no, no, he sees them coming and he says, let's go meet them. And Jesus has been praying and he's ready to face what lies ahead. In spite of the fact that at one human level, he didn't want to go through with it. At a deeper level, he wanted God's will. And so he's ready to face it. They've been sleeping. So watch what happens to them in the episodes that lie ahead. But Jesus, he himself is ready. And this, this little episode, before we leave it, um, it reflects Jesus' true humanity. He's in agony. He's distressed. He's anxious. He's feeling overwhelmed with the burden of what he's about to face. And he prepares for it by praying, openly, transparently praying, honestly to God, please take this cup from me. His human weakness is real. And his means of strength is really the model for all of us who would be his disciples. Though his body and his humanity was weak, he was made strong through prayer. And that's what prepares them to face this moment that now is upon him.